Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this marks the official format of the Film Trooper Podcast. The prior nine episodes were essentially um, older interviews I had done um, from an older podcast, but this is sort of the first official new one. My goal is to keep these podcasts to an hour or so, but this one ran a little longer, so, you know, just hang in there. In this episode, I interview Portland, Vancouver-based filmmaker Mark Steele as he talks about his feature films and his new web series. Before we begin the podcast, a little housekeeping. If you want to know more about what we're trying to do here at the Film Trooper Podcast, check back to episode one. That will give you a good rundown of everything that we're trying to do. So if this marks the official format of the show, it's time to give you the very first quick tip on how to go from a filmmaker to an entrepreneur. The most important thing to remember is mindset. I think it was Henry Ford who said, if you think you can, or if you think you can't, you're right. Now, if you think about that for a moment, you must be in the right mindset. So if you believe that you are a filmmaker, then just be a filmmaker. No one says you have to be a good filmmaker. Just declare yourself that you are a filmmaker. I am a filmmaker. Now, it doesn't take much more effort to declare yourself as an entrepreneur. So you can now say, I am an entrepreneur. You know, I know deep down inside you might feel like a fraud, but that's okay because, you know, I can't recall where the quote comes from, but in the world of entrepreneurs, you'll hear a saying of fake it until you make it. So there you go. Two quotes. If you think you can, or if you think you can't, then you're right. And fake it till you make it. When you wrap your head around all that, you'll take the first steps into being in the correct mindset. Now, the following episodes will go into the baby steps of actually making that mindset into a reality. So enjoy the first step. It's very simple. Just mindset. Make believe it. Make it happen. If you're a creative person, this should not be hard. And just believe your bullshit and you'll be fine. Okay, now on to my interview with filmmaker Mark Steele. So hey, we're recording. So welcome. Hey, hey Scott. <laughs> so I'm here with Mark Steele, and we are here at Stanford's uh, Staple. I think it's a chain. It's a chain restaurant, right? It's a Across. Chain. Yeah. So, but it's, you know, and we're here at Jansen's Beach. Jansen Beach. I've never been here before. I didn't even know this <laughs> well, place welcome. existed. Yeah. It's on Hayden Island. I actually worked on Hayden Island at a little restaurant here back in the '80s when I was a kid. Um, as my one of my first jobs. So did you live here? I mean, have you lived in the Pacific Northwest the whole time? Or like, what's... I was born in the Pacific Northwest, but I uh, moved away when I was 24 to Hawaii. And I lived in Hawaii for about seven years. And then in Hawaii, I was hired where I still am employed by Hawaiian Airlines as a flight attendant. And I'm still based in Honolulu, but I commute back to Portland for... Are, I, now, do you live in Vancouver? I live in Vancouver. There, it's, so is there, is like you're at, like, do you use... So you live there, but it's also the beneficial because you don't have to report income tax. Is that correct? There's no state tax taken out of my paycheck. That's correct. There you go. There you go. Yes. Okay. So there's no state tax in the state of Washington. Right. So I, I claim Washington residency in there. It's so, and I legitimately live there, so it's a, I don't have to pay any state tax. Okay. So there's no state tax in Washington, and there's no sales tax in Oregon. So you've got a pretty good gig. And then you fly back and forth to Hawaii. Like, let me ask you something. What is... Um, what are the cool? That sounds like a dream job, like to be a flight attendant for Hawaiian Airlines. So, what what can you say is um, 
what people might not know about being a flight attendant. That would be like, you know, because I saw dark, you. I saw the you, dark side? Well, no, I saw a tweet from you because uh, Casey Geyer, who I was supposed to interview um, this past Sunday, but he got booked for this Vegas gig and he's like driving Lamborghinis or whatever it was. But he, he, he was like, you know, the, he was stuck in like a trailer for hours saying like, uh, you know, life of an actor. But you ping back saying, try the, the glamorous <laughs> life of a flight attendant. So what did you mean by, <laughs> by that? Because honestly, I was going to tell my wife, like, I don't know, you know, uh, that sounds pretty good, being a flight attendant for Hawaiian Airlines. It is. Um, and I've been doing it for 26 years. And I, um, uh, the part that is fantastic is that I've been there for so long is I, I get paid really well to pass out pretzels. So that's it. <laughs> I only work about 10 days a month. I... I can set my own schedule every month, so I create my own schedule. We bid. So if I don't want to work a certain week, I just don't work that week. I just bid it off, and I just arrange my schedule however I want to work. That part is beautiful. The difficult part is, say, a uh, five-hour commute to work from Portland. I have to fly five hours just to get to work. And then once I get there, my work day begins. And then, say, I work an eight- or nine-hour flight to Japan or a 10-hour flight to New York City oh. or to New Zealand or any of the various other countries that we fly to. So by the time I get there for the layover, I am literally exhausted beyond belief. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. it's get to the hotel, get rest. That's all I can think about is get some rest. And then by the time you wake up, half of your layover is gone. And then you have time maybe go out for dinner, see a little bit of where you are, and then it's back on the plane for another 10-hour flight back to Honolulu. And then when I get into Honolulu... Another five-hour flight to get home. That part is not glamorous. Yeah, yeah at all. Yeah, no, I. I it's travel, grueling. Travel in general just takes a wear. So, but, but it, interesting. Yes. But I do love the travel, and I love seeing. I've been all over the world, and that part of it, I'm very grateful for actually. So, so when I hit for my job, when I would have to fly down to San Diego for like once a month, I would. Originally, I was doing like Monday through Friday, but just the commute, even that short commute, was just too. The variables were never like I could never quite get there on time because there was so many like something got delayed or like like getting my car rental was took forever. I so I actually was I would have to book in so I would fly in like that uh, a day or two before a weekend or something so I stay with my family um, when I was down there my brothers and stuff. So I don't know. Do you are you able to fly in earlier just to kind of catch yourself or is it or is it always just like. I usually fly in the same day, which is um, because I don't want to give up days off at home. So, I see. And I'm busy with also making movies. Yeah, well, we or we'll get you for sure, yeah. Yes, so I, and also I have two children, so I'm actually six, counting my wife's children. We have six together, but her children are all adults. And we, my son is 17, my daughter's 19, so he's just beginning his senior year in high school. So I need to be home for to have the, have the eyes on him to make sure that he's <laughs> getting stuff done. So our plan is once my son is out of high school that we'll have a little more leeway and maybe I can be gone a little bit more. Um, that, and my wife and I can travel a little bit more together. So uh, your flat, your your miles must be insane, right? It's insane. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cool. So anyway, I didn't want to get uh, sidetracked on right. that, but you I was just I was just really fascinated, and I thought that'd be. It's just neat to somebody here the other side. Like, it sounds so glamorous, or it sounds like, wow, but there is, is a glamorous the, side to it, but there's all, like everything else, like it being an acting, acting, or making movies, there's a glamorous side to it, but making films is also very grueling and tedious. You know, yeah. So. Cool. So we'll, let's get started with this. Since this is the Film Trooper podcast, I have a set of questions that try to keep 
um, in order for all the podcasts yes, I, I do. Yes, I saw those questions. So. so we've done our little welcome and introductions, but I wanted to ask you, um, since this is about film and about filmmakers, what are some of your favorite films or like one or two that have maybe that are your favorites, but also how did that influence you? Okay. When I was a little kid, of course, you know, there was only television. There were no VCRs or cable or anything. So the yearly event for me when I was a child, I loved The Wizard of Oz. And so it was, um, and it was a big event every year. I mean, families, we all literally were glued to the TV every year when that came on. And nobody went anywhere. And you just watched it. And so that was a big deal to me, the saturated colors of that movie, the original scoring, everything. I absolutely loved that movie when I was a child. So, But when, as I got older... Um, then I discovered disaster films. There was a wave of them, yeah. yeah. My dad took me to see the Poseidon Adventure and the Towering Inferno. Oh, yeah, right. Those were pretty darn cool. You know, I, li- I liked those. And then, of course, when I was a teenager, Star Wars came out. And then so then I discovered the sci-fi genre, which um, I loved um, the original Star Wars trilogy. Uh, uh, and then for dramas... My a movie that I saw when I was very young, adult, which Im- impacted me greatly for a drama, was Sophie's Choice. That movie stayed with me for several days after I saw it. It was such, it was such a powerful movie, especially the scene where Meryl Streep has to make the decision yeah. between her children. I mean, that just tore me up when I, I mean, I just had never seen anything so powerful on, uh, in a drama before. But that said, what all of those movies have in common is a great story. And so really, all these genres like sci-fi or musical or whatever are just window dressing to tell a great story. And it's just, so I find that I don't really have one genre that I particularly like over another. It's what I like is the story. Interesting. You know, you did a great way of just segueing that into my next question, <laughs> which was, right, at, every, at the heart of every film is a story. And so the question is, why do we need stories? Why do you think, what is the psychological need that, us as humans why do we even need to tell these things over and over again well of course the obvious answer would be that it's cathartic and that it's um for human beings that we all share a common experience that we all have or live in the human struggle and when we see other people going through the struggle i think it um it bonds us together and it um it um brings out our weaknesses and the greatness of humans and i just saw a uh, I rarely go see films, actually, in the theater anymore. Who does? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but my wife and I just went to see The Butler. And, oh, okay. Which didn't get overwhelmingly great reviews. Pretty good reviews, been over it. but I thought it was a great movie. And what I really loved about it, which was just speaking to what I was saying, was it really showed the flaws of all these people, as yeah. well as the things that they did right, or their, the hero in all of them, as well as the disaster in all of them. Is um, like the Oprah Winfrey character. She was a terror. Her the woman she portrayed was the wife of the butlers, alcoholic, cheated on her husband. However, in the end, she was really there for him, and she. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. so we really pulled for her and cared about her. In the end, to me, had were they not shown those flaws, if they would have made her just this two-dimensional, glossy character, she wouldn't have been nearly as interesting or as heroic in the end to me because we we, did, we say we saw in spite of her flaws that she became she became a real partner for her husband you know really a champion for her husband interesting so it's instead of being like a stereotype there there was an archetype but with depth i guess you know correct so it's not a cartoon you use of those like fancy terms on yeah. me yes yes <laughs> 
so let's see here. Okay, so we know that all stories have a beginning, and I referred to this in the question, like uh, Joseph Campbell, you know, of Hero a Thousand Faces, and this. Um, have you ever read that book, Hero a Thousand Faces? No. It's uh, oh, it's that's me. Yes. Yeah, it's here. I'll hold it. Thanks. Look at this. I get some food. Um, so Hero a Thousand Faces is like sort of what. Lucas based like all of his uh, the Star Wars trilogies on because of um, the story of the myth. And Joseph, he did this whole series when before Joseph, Joseph Campbell died, where he interviewed the, him and um, for archive reasons, for educational reasons. And Joseph Campbell has this extremely wealth of knowledge. He's passed away, you know, a couple of years now, uh, maybe a couple of decades. I can't remember exactly remember when he he was um, le- uh, left the earth, but he wrote this famous famous book education like you know text almost like a textbook about mythology in all um, cultures and civilizations over the over over our lifetime as humans and he's he would be able to show the commonality of story and myth you know amongst all these different uh, cultures and, and stuff anyhow it's a really kind of a hard book to read because you just you have to, every sentence he has like all these annotations or um, footnotes based off like all his research and it's just it's really like overwhelming like how much knowledge he has but it does give you this sort of like god's eye view of like the whole um history of man and how we use story and myth well christopher volger um he wrote a book called uh, the writer's journey and it was much kind of more of a layman's version of <laughs> joseph campbell so it's much easier to understand and he was like a story consultant for some of the studios because he had this very manageable book to, to use to read when you're trying to break down a story for, you know, for movies. So they talk about the first part of all stories have what they call the ordinary world. It's sort of like you have to lay out, like, here's the rules of this world or here's the rules of this story. Here's the ordinary world of our hero or character mm-hmm. and it usually starts with like you know where you were born but you already told me you were born here in the northwest so that's where you began so we kind of gave that um thing and then the and then there's another um writer of mine uh, that that has passed away a couple years ago too uh, blake snyder he wrote these series of screenwriting books called save the cat and the, the whole premise of his save the cat is essentially he thinks that Within the first five minutes or so, your main characters or your whatever your characters has to have like a save the cat, cat moment. It has to have a moment of showing some sort of huma- humanity or flaw or something where the audience will bite into. Like, I'll buy into it. I'll follow this character and follow them through the entire story because they did this one act, you know, or they, they showed something about themselves as a character that I would be willing to follow all the way through to the end of the story. And it's interesting because you'll notice my wife, as I've gotten, so she's not, you know, she's not into any of this stuff. But I've always mentioned about save the cat moments, and she, now when she's watching TV shows or movies, she'll just stop and go, "I don't know why this is not working for me." Like you can't pinpoint it, and then she's like, "Ah, oh, I get it now. This person didn't have a save the cat moment. Like all these characters, I don't care about. I really don't care if they get killed at the end because they haven't shown me any." ounce of humanity or something that makes me want to care for them for the whole story which is interesting so my question is to you since this is about like a little bit about your life story oh thanks do you have a save the cat moment do you have something early on that you could share with us like you know what I uh, I did actually save a cat or something (laughs) 
You mean my personal life? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, this is your chance for people to like you. <laughs> I would. Can we come back to that question? Because I want to. I want to mull that over. And oh, look at that. Yeah. Let's. Let me pause it. Let me take a few bites of this wonderful yeah. salad and yet give you time to think about it. Hold on here. Okay, wait, we're back real quick. So Mark doesn't have a save the cat moment. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I shared with there him. There are so many, I can't exactly. No, he's adorable. Listen, so we'll come back to that one. But have you ever read um, Robert McKee's book, Story? No. Um, okay, so he in his book, he has like these... Have you ever seen that movie um, adaptation or... Um, by uh, with um, Nicolas Cage in it, where he plays like twins. Anyhow, so there's a scene in so, there yes. where the famous thing about Robert McKee Thank you. is that he has like this. Um, Robert McKee is like it's seen like a, a character played by I forget what the actor is um, who plays him in the movie, but he's this he's a real guy who teaches like all these Hollywood heavyweights about story and story structure and things like that. He's got a very famous book called Story. It's very inspirational. It gets you like, oh man, I just want to write now after reading his stuff. His main thing he talks about is essentially in film not to write, not to rely on voiceover because it's a visual medium. So you, you want to show as much as you can and not tell, not ever sort of tell. Absolutely. So in the movie adaptation... Um, Nicholas Cage is like he's supposed to be this Charlie Kaufman the writer who did um, Being John Malkovich so he was acting like he was that writer and he was he was having this literally this voiceover scene going, and <laughs> in the movie it was hilarious because he's like wait a minute Rob McKee says no voiceover what the fuck oh shit yeah, like he's like freaking out but it's in the movie anyway so McKee talks about every story has to have like sort of this inciting incident sort of something that kicks the our hero's uh, story into high gear. Something that early on that happens that we as, um, as story watchers or story readers can see, like, oh, there's that script moment. format. Yeah, the script format. So the question is, for you, do you have an inciting incident that made you realize, like, wait a minute, I might want to make films or I, want to, I might want to act. Yes, I do. So let's share that one. Well, I always knew I wanted to be an actor since I was very, very little. And I was discouraged, of course, like most kids, I think, from doing that, by my parents especially. So, but I did. I pursued acting even in high school, and I was voted most talented in my senior year and all that stuff. And then after high school, I kind of went away from it for years because I thought I had to get serious and get, um, you know, concentrate on getting a real job, quote-unquote. Um, but it never went away, the desire. So then in my 30s, I got back into acting seriously, started taking classes, and um, uh, uh, start, got an agent, started auditioning for things. The impetus for me wanting to make films was at an audition, and I was at an audition for uh, something, I don't remember what it was, but I, I looked at all the producers and the director, and they're completely not looking at me, they were ignoring me, looking around. You know, texting, whatever, probably wasn't texting. It was, just, you know, two, two, 15 years ago or so. And I just looked at them and realized, I have to go over their heads. These people, I, I you know, I, I'm not going to get where I want to get if I'm depending on these people. It just was like, I have to do something on my own. I have to create my own door. And um, so I continued doing plays at the time. I was doing a lot of plays. And then I was with my wife said to me 
it's taking too much of your time to do these plays. It's just hugely time-consuming, and you have children. And I said, all right, then I'm going to go to film school. And she said, okay. So I went to film school. I did not complete all the courses. I, t I wanted to have a cursory knowledge of filmmaking. And as soon as I um, started, I knew the first set of my very first movie where we had no money. It was just all the school's equipment. The very first time I said action, I was hooked on making movies. And it was, I knew this is exactly where I wanted to be. I felt like I was in my shoes. I was comfortable. And I felt at home. And I've, so that was, I, really there were two things. It was my wife saying, I want you to do something else besides plays. And seeing those directors and producers, you know, being so dismissive of me when it, it was, I just thought, there's another way. Interesting. That's actually a good one. I, having your, um, your spouse sort of give you that freedom, they just need to give you that little nudge to like, do this, why don't you do this? Or like, can, this might work or, or something is, I give you, I give you like permission or freedom to just go for it. That, I don't know how for you, was that helpful to like, just be like, when she said, stop making plays, but have a film school? Because I was... <clears throat> yes, it was very helpful. And she's, it's difficult for any spouse or partner with someone who's in this business or industry, regardless of what level you're on, because it is so time consuming when you're doing it. And it's all consuming. And so they feel kind of left, you know, they feel kind of put on the side which is unfortunate because we don't realize that when we get so hyper focused on our project that our our um, partners suffer sometimes and uh, I so I now I just uh, quite consciously take time to be with her to or my children uh, and, it's, and I'll learn that you can put the project down for a few hours it'll still be right there when you get back and I think it's important for a lot of artists to to realize and perhaps try and do that because a lot of relationships suffer which you may or may not know with when you yeah. get into do especially when you start making your own projects because it is so time consuming i hear i mean i went to film school and um made a bunch of crappy short films and made one that was decent enough that i um my dad at the time was working at a video game company, and he's way too old for working at a video game company, but he was a good, really good artist. And the funniest thing about it was the only comments they had for him when they hired him, they said, you're a really good artist, and gra you know, animator, graphic artist, all that kind of stuff, but you just need to play more video games. <laughs> and you have to understand, prior to this, he had grounded my younger brother. He had taken his Nintendo away because my brother was failing at school because all he was doing was playing video games. Mm. So he had it like swallow his pride and bring out the video game unit back to my brother and ask my younger brother to teach him how to play because his new job was requiring him to play. So at that point, my younger brother never was never grounded again for that. <laughs> Is that in fact, my younger brother is an art director for a video game company. and um, so it, like, That paid off for him, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So, but it's funny. So my dad was working, just got hired this, uh, at Sony. And he said, hey, you know what? Because I was up in Santa Barbara, and I at that point had basically depleted all the funds I had, and I was now into debt and credit trying to make films. You know, I was thinking that was at the time. That's a very common story. Because <laughs> you know that was the bullshit myth that they would t teach you back then. It's like you would hear these stories, like they put it on their credit card, and they you know they hit it big. 
Well, there's like that one or two st- people that actually did it and there's like thousands of people that did the same thing what's his name Kevin Smith Kevin Smith yeah Yeah, that's his story already yeah so they 30 grand on his credit cards or whatever to make that movie right so they would you know that's what they would sell back then is the media this is how you would have to do it but they don't tell you like thousands of people that tried it and then are stuck with this debt you know so the real world was I had this debt but at least I had this film you know, because I had worked um, with this graduate film student in film school, and she was throwing forty, fifty thousand dollars in her graduate film project, and I was helping her cut it. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm not too sure this is a wise business investment." You know, because it's I don't know how you're going to recoup this money. So I was trying to keep all my stuff always cheap. Anyhow, um, my story real quick is so I made this one film, and I had I was trying to make like a. Uh, a video series so I make one and then try to get a video uh, a video deal to make more so that I would just go into the video store straight to video and that was the goal so I took this film and there was a chance to interview for this company Sony this is Sony PlayStation 1 this is before PlayStation 1 was even out nobody even knew what PlayStation was they just had a need for somebody to do video servicing for their marketing group so I came in I showed my film, I did the interview, and I don't think I was the first choice. I think I was the cheap choice. But cheap choice to them, and what to me, being completely broke and you know working at hotels or whatever it is to make extra money, looking at like a steady job for, it was like, oh my God, I can't believe how much money I'll get you know, to make. And then I got the job, and I was more interested in all the equipment they had. You know, as you probably had that same feeling at film schools, like access to equipment and people. And so what I didn't know was I was there for 12 years. So I ran their cinematic department. So I made movies for the PlayStation um, for many, many years. But what that did do is it gave me a chance to work in the corporate world. At the same time, build a family life. Because then I got married. Uh, we had one, our daughter. We were living, you know, in Southern California. And this is, you know, buying a house, all that kind of stuff. Until everything just collapsed, you know, with the economy and all that kind of junk. And so that's what ended us all the changes to have us uh, come up here, you know, because you got to come where opportunity is, and that's my wife's opportunity to, to work up here. So that's how we ended up here. But I totally understand your the need to be like a family life, you know. And I remember this interview with uh, Francis Ford Coppola on the Actors Studio. With um, mm-hmm. I watch that show all the time. Yeah, so he remember he mentions that, in that show, he was mentioning, like, he hear all these young people saying they just they didn't want to start a family or get in a really a relationship until they had their sort of career in order. And he says, well, what? He goes, it didn't make sense to him. He says, you just start. You start living life. Like, he had a family when he <laughs> was trying to get his films made. I think he was making his, his adult film before he made The Rainmaker and all that kind of stuff. He had a family. It was being, you know, mm-hmm. that, was, that he had to support. So it is interesting to see that and that need... To, to talk this way because with a lot of people you meet is you, you feel envious of these young people where they don't have any of those obligations and they have just the world at their feet to do all that stuff but when you do have a family or you know a spouse and you're in a relationship it is a good thing to balance out because then you can draw from that power for your you know create creatively you know so anyway I'm just wanted to cooperate with you I totally understand where you're coming from so but it <laughs> also you. I could totally understand the wonderful need it is the the boost it gives you when your spouse basically gives you the freedom to go for it. My wife was just like, when I was making this movie, The Cube, she was like, just go for it. You know, and I, I just needed, I needed that from her to be like, do I have the permission to go for this? And so that's how, you know, that's helpful. That is a 
a tremendous gift she gave you because, uh, uh, because yeah, a lot of times that is not true. No, no, exactly. Especially when there's no, you know, when you're just beginning it or you're trying to make something and, there, and you're not at a level where you're making money at it yet or something. And it's hard for somebody to say, my wife has said to me before, you know, why would you give so much time to something that's not really giving you that much return monetarily, giving me tremendous returns as far as artistically, but the money has only recently started coming in a little bit. So from the returning from my work and I've only made four films and in in one web series. So it's not doing, I'm not doing too badly. You know, the fact that let's just put that you've done two short films and two feature films. Correct. Right? And they, and that I commend you. It's amazing. Cause it's like, and I just, before I just came um, here to meet with you, I just finished watching uh, future perfect and it was great. So just want to really? commend you on that. Oh, thank yeah. you. So let's see. I'll we'll get to the next question here. Um, okay, so Joseph Campbell and Chris Volger always talk about in story structure the need to have a mentor, like an Obi Wan Kenobi and stuff like that. Growing up, do you did you have a mentor or somebody that you can re- that you can say that you know this teacher definitely influenced me to in the in the tra- the path that you've um, found yourself in? I would say I've had. Two mentors, one early on and then one just recently. And one was in high school. I was very involved in the arts in high school. I was in the drama club, Shakespeare Guild, the choir, the jazz choir, ensemble choir, and so forth. I was very involved. So our high school choir teacher back then, her name was Mrs. Joyce Garver at Camas High School. She is since deceased. Um, and uh, cor- uh, But she was very eccentric. And one of the most dynamic teachers I've ever met in my life. And she, re- she took this group of just very raw talent in high school and turned us into an amazing choir and vocal jazz. And um, what I learned from her was just how raw ambition and raw talent, if you have somebody who can just learn how to hone it, um, what a difference it makes. So she really inspired me to um, realize, I guess, what is possible. What is possible with, when, you, when, you have, when you have that... She just had blind ambition. Blind, just a driving force with, with her that really impressed me. So, segue to 20 years later when I'm... Not that many years later, probably about 17, 18, 15 years later when I was getting back into acting and film. I... My second movie I did, the second short, Marvin's Plan, which we got into like seven film festivals. Mm-hmm. It did um, did pretty well, and uh, I that was really good, by the way. Marvin's Plan. Oh, did yeah. you see it? I watched. <laughs> um, for those who get a chance to see it, it's um, it's got a good little twist on it. Oh. I like it. I like it. Okay, so it um, it has a yeah, that's has a big twist in the movie, but uh, it um. That was the very first movie I did with Galvin Collins, who's a director of photography for three of my movies, for the subsequent two movies after that. And he has really been a mentor to me because he's a film school graduate, and um, he uh, knows his stuff. And so I really leaned on him when I was directing. I would just set up shots to help me get you know, shot lists and, set, and so forth. And to when I would want something, and he would kind of just gently say to me, well, what if we tried it this way or something? And then I would see in the final product or that he was right, and so and then by that, by that working together in that you know that collaborative effort together, I've learned so much more from him, and I believe he's learned from me because I came in from a very strong actor's standpoint. So when I was wanting performance out of actors and so forth, I notice 
in films now, he will, things that I was talking about on set, he will notice when we're in post-production editing or something, he'll say, oh, maybe they could have get, and he'll use like total director-actor language that I know he learned from me, and it's kind of, and, <laughs> and I will use language that I absolutely learned from him. So it has been a very collaborative effort, but I would also have to say I have to give him a lot of kudos and a lot of my gratitude because I have learned a ton from him about the actual mechanics of filmmaking. Yeah, it's it, watching. Was it Marvin the first one that um, that he worked with you on? Yes. Okay, so then you guys did um, uh, wearing normal. Wearing normal was next. Yeah, which is it was good. it's interesting to watch the progression technically because then when you got to Future Perfect, it, it was oh beautifully shot. It, it looked. You know, like you guys definitely upped the game in terms of production. We like did. you can see, you can see the progression of your guys' talent and skill just getting better and better. So that was very, very cool. I would agree with you, and thank you for noticing. Um, yes, th- there we have added more money to each uh, production, which of course production value is important. But what is equally, if not more important, is the experience that we brought to each project that we've learned and built on each last project moving forward. And uh, so by the time I, Future Perfect was actually the very first movie I made, it was a short, and it was that was the one I made in film school, and then we made it into the feature. So by the time Future Perfect got around, I uh, realized the importance of production value, good acting, and a good script. You have to have a good script to start with, or it's not going to uh, go anywhere. So, right. and of course, I had to take on a huge burden by being writer, director, producer, actor in those movies, which I get a lot of flack for, but... Who gives you flack? Oh, people in the industry. Locally? (laughs) You can't do locally. uh, You can't do all that. You you can't wear so many hats, which in the... uh, It it is a lot. It is a lot, but I've... uh, I don't think it showed in Future Perfect. I think that I had enough collaborative effort going on that I and in wearing normal I did have Janelle Lee Hamlin was my acting coach so I had okay. an acting coach on set yeah yeah uh, for the scenes that I was in that I w- so I did have a different set of eyes there for helping me and she pulled out a lot which was was really good and in Future Perfect I did not we just uh, I just went for it and but I do have a strong ba- acting background so I, ha- I've, I have a lot of resources to pull on a lot of history with the acting so I, I feel that's my most confident uh, role, actually, is directing and acting. And the, the technical part I'm still learning. That's, that's uh, which most directors come in for just a technical, not most, but a lot. Many come in for just a technical uh, film, right. like how, what lens to use, you know, what lighting you're going to use, so forth. That is, I would say, my, weak, my weakness. But I, we can all look in, a, in the camera lens and say, no, that doesn't look right to me or change this shot. Yeah. I think if you just have an eye for that and you depend on your DP and gaffers and so forth to get, to get the right lighting for you that you would like. So, not to say that a director shouldn't have some working knowledge of those things. Of course, you're the director, you should. So, anyway. But hey, you know what? Coming from me, I say keep going. Because, like, <laughs> you know, I'm on the, the book of, like, you know, for my film, like, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to act in it. I just wrote it, and I was going, oh, crap. I might as well just get this going and start just throw myself into it. I probably could have used, like, acting coach on... I could actually use a crew on site because... I'm going to tell you, like... Crew would be good. <laughs> sometimes, like, I would um, sit there, and there'd be a scene going on, and I 
all the other actors that were in the scene um, were talking, you know, normal. Their, their, their volume was low, you know, but the, the performances were, were truthful. And where I was in the back of my mind when I was performing was looking at the camera going, wait a minute, I think we're getting a lens flare there. Wait a minute. Well, I think the I think the microphone's too far away. Like like all this stuff was going through my head, so I would like over project because I knew when I got the footage back and I got the audio files back that I was going to have a hard time, you know, cranking up the um, the audio to hear the other actors. So I was trying to get them to speak a little louder just because of a technical problem not because of a performance thing of course when I get the editing stuff all of it together they look great their performance and, and then my performance was like why am I yelling <laughs> so I had to like figure out a way to tone it down a little bit or like not show me as much so I try to get as many reaction shots for the other actors whenever I was on so I try to reduce the amount of screen time that I was on but thank god for editing exactly <laughs> so funny but I have to commend you I think definitely the that technique, uh, your performances, and all the films that I saw you, uh, that I watched were really, really great. You could tell, you could see the maturity in your performance as opposed to um, as opposed to mine. No, I'm <laughs> no, it was no. Like, but it was helpful. But it was really to good to yourself. But you did was really like I said. I you could see a flow. So when you got to um, feature perfect, the feature film, it really was it was really enjoyable watching. I think a lot of it too because I worked with uh, Matt. Uh, Voicine? Oh, Voicine? Voicine. We worked on our commercial together and we had a great time he's together. He's an so. amazing, so he's an amazing actor. He's awesome. Yeah, so, th- but everybody was just watching that or just even the little scene. I haven't uh, taken a class with Robert Blanchett, but seeing his little scene in there was great. You know, it was just, it like, was amazing this talent we got. And that was a SAG, SAG after production. And uh, we did the new media contract for that. Um, which I would encourage everyone to do that, actually. It's much, it's not as scary or complicated as you think it was. And Robert, who is, of course, the president of SAG after in Portland, uh, helped me with the paperwork. He helped me through it. It was, couldn't have been nicer. And, um, and I was happy to get him in the movie. Ted Rooney was in the movie. Aaron McGarry, Paul Glazier, Lisa Marie Harrison. Mm-hmm. There are uh, so many people. Uh, Megan Carver, uh, and Matt Boisin, of course, and Jennifer Bryan. All local talent, and they're all amazing actors. And it's really, I'm very proud of them and the movie. You should be. I mean, I, it was really, really cool. So <laughs> let's see here. We've got um, down my questions here. Blah, 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 blah. I'm going to get to the another part of the question is every story has like this like moment of despair, <laughs> you know, where like the hero goes to like this they call it the inmost cave where they have to reach the final boss or the final challenge before they defeat that challenge that darkest time and then when they have that victory they are supposed to take the elixir back to the ordinary world so that's sort of how it's supposed to be like a, a general story structure is supposed to happen so in your life making this film and making all these films did you have like a dark time but you came through with it and then you have like an elixir that you can bring back to your or like the normal world again like you know basically you've ch- you've, you've changed you know the idea is that everybody goes to the story they go through something and then they they hit rock bottom or something but they learn something from it you mean in my personal life right or or uh, about the movie you can decide you can share with you us you mean about making the movie or I, 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 sometimes they kind of intertwine oh because, they do <laughs> because I, hearing what you're telling me about your personal life there, I th- I'm gathering that um, Future Perfect is somewhat a 
semi-autobiographical. Like you would be correct in that assumption. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that is where when you asked me early on about why are movies important, and they are cathartic, and they're cathartic for me because I wrote it, uh, when I took a screenwriting class at Northwest Film Center. That was the number one thing they teach, and he was an amazing teacher. Um, was saying it was to uh, write what you know, of course, but to have fun and surprise yourself with the script. But um, but to tell the truth, just like in acting, we want to tell the truth. And so I, yes, that movie came from a very dark episode of my first marriage, which didn't end well, and um, it was uh, not a happy marriage. And I, so I took those experiences and made it into a dark comedy, which was, in a way, I did have to go through a very dark period in my life, but then something very good came out of it. There was, there was like that, yeah, the, the, the rose, the blossoms in the spring, you know, from, a, the, from underneath the bitter snow, to quote a Bette Midler song, you know, but it was, <laughs> it was definitely, uh, that was part of it for me. And I realized, actually, during Wearing Normal, too, I used a lot of my personal life and some painful episodes from my childhood. My father was somewhat abusive when I was growing up, and so I had some scars that I carried into my adult life from that, but I wrote about it in Wearing Normal when my a character in the movie has flashbacks, and I actually use real incidents from my life that happened to me as a child. And I remember standing on stage after the first screening of Wearing Normal, and the audience all stood up, and I had got a standing ovation at the screening, and I, had, I was shocked that that happened, and I kind of teared up a little bit, and I realized out of that pain and darkness came this wonderful moment in my life and it was extremely cathartic and it was healing I mean I don't I, it was I, I just isn't it makes wild makes me very happy when did you know you were an artist and when did you know that you 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 were basically cursed to like always having a need to express yourself <laughs> uh, I knew from, from I can remember that I wanted to be an actor it but was, he, just, but it was even, just something that I always knew so, but even though that you, we went like, you sort of do what you're supposed to do, like you, you get a job, you do all that kind of stuff, like, um, did you have this, the reason I'm asking, because for myself, it's like, I was able to work, you know, professionally in the, in the field in, in uh, you know, video production, film production, TV production, to some extent, so I'm always around something creative, but when the got pretty, you know, rough during the economic downturn and we're just trying to figure out how to make, you know, make a living and all that kind of stuff, you've, you kind of cr- come across these moments of uh, compromise. Like, uh, you know, I was like, maybe, you know, I was going to clean houses or something just to like make money, you know, just to, to do, to mm-hmm. do, do that kind of stuff. And I was trying to figure out something creative within that field, you know, but I just, I came to this moment like a couple years ago where I was just like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm an artist. Like I, I'm like it's a curse almost because you're yeah, like yeah. Th- I'm always having this stupid need to like create something or express something, no matter what it is, and you realize that you know what this is going to be tagged on you forever because it's and this is the 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 need to just do this. So it's fascinating to hear you talk about you know sort of cathartic cathartic. I can't. Sorry, I <laughs> I made fun of my mother way too much when I was growing up, so I have a hard time uh, pronouncing English words. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. that's right. Cathartic. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so very cathartic for you to do this, but it is like you said. We were talking about the need for stories, but it's also just the need for art and the need for artists to do this. And then 
because of what comes out of it, you you have something. You have a couple things are tangible. So I mean, so whatever you know, whatever happens to you now in terms, but you've done it. You've created four films, and they're out there in the ether that exists. That if somebody watches that, has some sort of inspirational or like um, moment or connection with it, you know. And something that's unintentional, probably for you, because you're more or, le- more or less just trying to express it. Mm-hmm. So that, it's fascinating to see that for artists and filmmakers to to have the, those moments, you know. Y- yes, um, I definitely. I think so. Yeah, and I, I, you just said something, and I'm I'm trying to remember what it was. It was in a, it. Anyway, I lost the thought. Sorry. Well, no. Well, put we were. I thought about uh, one of my friends was mentioning when I talked about that, like that "fuck, I'm an artist" moment. <laughs> it was like we were going to like make a T-shirt with like this big sign that says "fuck," and this little guy says, "I'm an artist." So anybody understands that would know. <laughs> right. And for me, it was yes, and a lot. Of, I was never attracted to this uh, to be an artist or to make movies or an actor for money because I just knew that that was probably. You know, if that comes from it, that's a fantastic byproduct. And of course, I would like that to happen because I'd like to make a living doing this. But that's not the driving force. The driving force for me is to create, to express, and to um, uh, just to be in that environment. I'm, I'm happiest on a set or or even I haven't done a play in years, but I've, I've or in a play where I'm where we're where you're in that creative process and I think that's why I, I enjoy film more than stage because it is such a process and it takes so many elements to come together and I mean just to make a, I, I was at a film festival once in Hawaii though it was the Honolulu Film Festival that my movie Marvin's Plan was in and I um got up to accept an award they get, uh, won an award for I can't remember what it was thanks uh, but uh, I think it was the Golden Kahuna Award and um, this man before me who won for Best Picture got up and um, he wasn't right yet but anyway he spoke before I did <laughs> and he he had just won for Best Picture and he was so humble which number one impressed me because there are a lot, there's a lot of arrogance in this industry and yeah. he got up and he was extremely humble and he just said to all of us and he was and to you know the general public at large he's saying any movie that's ever made is a miracle and it has stuck with me ever since he said that because it is true because it takes so many people um, coming together at a given moment to create and you have to have you know your sound camera ACs gaffers you know, all the all your actors the script you know your AD all these people are c- convening at one certain point in time to create something and it's like wow <laughs> We're all here, and all of that came from a thought, from somebody putting word to page, and it's just—it's an amazing process to me. It's—it is. It's miraculous. That's really great. You know, it's—it's funny because that—that kind of ties into like so the next sets of question, which is the idea of you've basically shared with us the elixir, like your shared moment coming out of the ashes or whatever it is and you created something and then you learned this stuff and now you've shared this bit of knowledge and experience to the the rest of us you know so that's that's sort of when you encapsulate then you sort of have like a complete story so we've got your beginning like where you came from what inspired you your inciting moments your um your mentors and then um you know the trial and error just getting your stuff done and you had your dark moments and then you made something and then you 
bring this elixir back to the you know to the ordinary world to share um, with everyone you know for the betterment of mankind I guess you know it's actually funny because my mom's from Thailand and my dad's from New York so I kind of grew up with a lot of um, you know some Buddhist um, not teachings per se it wasn't like in the house like we were practicing it but it was the, 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 the Far East or the Eastern philosophies and, and religious studies and stuff like that was bef- definitely prevalent when I was growing up and Buddha talks about that which is like the greatest gift to give to people is to share your knowledge and the idea is that once you reach nirvana you go through your whatever journey you've gone through the idea now is to pay back you know pay back and you know, share your knowledge and stuff like that so that's sort of that in in itself is a story that's sort of the story of man, you know mankind is just every day you wake up with your ordinary world some shit happens like the first part of your day that sets your whole day off that you got to deal with mm-hmm. all this conflict and the idea is like you get through it, you fix it, and by the end of the night, either you have that moment at night where it's like tomorrow's another day, tomorrow's basically another story. So every day almost feels like a, a complete story in itself. And so I think that's why we need stories and why we need to have that sort of closure to certain things mm-hmm. and, and then um, just keep going on. I think it brings us closer together as human beings. You know, we all share. We all share pain. We all have had pain at whatever degree in our lives. But pain is pain. And we've, all, so, and we've also all had joy and happiness, disappointments, and successes. And when we all share that in a, in a human common experience, which is usually... That's some those elements are usually in almost every movie we see. That's what brings us together as human beings, and it's not to sound cliche, but it does. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let me ask you. I want to talk about a little bit more about your projects you're working on, and if you have time, you want to check your phone. Um, I just want to get into the business part of it real quick. Is, sure. Oh, cool. So let's just talk about it. You've done so. We've done four four films. We have two short films. Uh, the Future Perfect. Um, Marvin's okay, Marvin's yeah. Plan Future Perfect Marvin's Plan were my first two shorts yes then you did Wearing Normal your first, fe- first feature, feature then and you just finished and Future Perfect was my uh, we made it for the short into a feature which and I ju- we just shot a web series which will be called Random Acts it's about six actors trying to make it in the business write what you know and it's a comedy and Janelle Hamlin directed our first episodes and I am in it I wrote it and produced it and it's in post-production right now. We just finished the rough edit. It's going to the sound guy. I think it's already there with the sound guy. And I'm we having it scored next week. And um, uh, then Color Correct. Uh, it'll be a going to Color Correction very soon. So um, that'll be released on YouTube. It's just going to be for on a YouTube channel, which I have someone... I The new media with all that stuff... Of that part, I am not super good at that. So I've actually hired a promoter for to promote it for me on YouTube because oh, okay. I understand it's it's quite. I guess it's not. You just don't just plop it on there and then suddenly get some hits. You have to have you have to have a game plan. Which see, this is all new to me. The new media. Yeah. <laughs> so I hired somebody who's uh, who knows something about that. Very so, cool. And also with Future Perfect, the good thing about that is it. Um, I work for Hawaiian Airlines, so I have an in which helped. But they rejected wearing normal, but I submitted um, Future Perfect to them to screen on the airplane, and they accepted it. Well, congratulations. Yeah, I saw that in so Facebook. So it's really going to start screening within the next month or two. It takes a while, and they're yeah. going to do an article in their in-flight magazine on me as their flight attendant makes good filmmaker. And, uh, and it's going to be screening on the airplane, so I have 
opportunity for millions of people to see my movie, which is, I'm very excited. And they actually paid me for it. So it's the first movie I've ever made that actually made some money back. Congratulations. I'm serious. It's so <laughs> suck. When I saw you post that on Facebook, I was like, oh, that's so cool. Now, do you, do you have to edit it down uh, to make it like PG? Or? I, they wanted a few things taken out, and so we did make it. <laughs> I wonder what they are. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so we, um, but you know, the airplane now, it's like, it's like Netflix, you know, kind of you just upload your own movie now. That everyone has their own private screen right. in front of them. So they just, it's and they just pay for certain, like, package of movies or whatever so that everyone just uploads their movies so they show some pretty you know R-rated stuff so they just wanted a few things taken out that were you know some a few of the cuss words a few of the sexual situations right. but very actually we only did about I think it was like two or three yeah, that I can remember there was some there are some F-bombs in there but not a whole ton but yeah, 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 yeah that's so commonplace anymore it was just sexual content and there was one masturbation scene that they wanted that's they, right they wanted that gone <laughs> even though you didn't see anything but. well you know yeah <laughs> the of implication course. was there yeah well first of all congratulations on that that's fantastic I mean that's really Thank cool you. I mean, you it's, gotta, a big, it's a big deal for me yeah. let's see um, when did you make your first film the, the first fear 2008 okay so that's what five years ago yeah. Let's go imagine six years ago to say like where you were six years ago to think like I'll have a film on Hawaiian Airlines. No, I wouldn't. See, yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> isn't that crazy? It's awesome. I love this. Yeah. Stuff. You know, I hear a lot of these interviews all the time um, with like different filmmakers, like uh, screenwriters and directors and stuff like that. And they always sort of gloss over these wonderful little moments. Like like all the interviewers, all the podcasts I ever listen to, <clears throat> it's like, oh, so... You know, you've writ, you writ, you wrote this Transformers movie or whatever it is, and then you did this one, and then it's like they just skip over like how easy, like how easy it was just to get an agent, how to get this movie made, and they they never really stop and say, when you had your first moment of like this happening, like did you just have a moment of like champagne or just uh, just a little celebration for yourself to go, man, that's pretty damn cool. Did you when? <clears throat> um, I have those moments every time a movie I make gets into a film festival or has some some kind of success. That I am is just cool. like on this high for several days, and then the reality reality of it kind of hits me sometimes, and it's like, uh, but okay, now I have to get to the festival, or I have to um, go and do all the the. Other, marketing, yeah. The marketing, or like, say, when it's on Hawaiian Airlines, and I have to go do the. Now I have to go make the airplane edit. Now we have to. There's always like, so is there's always some work involved, but not to take away from those moments where it's like. Right. So when I was told that the movie was accepted on Hawaiian Airlines, that was yeah, that was a big moment for me. And I and my wife was with me in the car, and because um, he called me on the phone in the car, we were on my on the way to Seattle for my cousin's wedding, and then I then he's the business end of it came up, and then he's like, well, how much do you want for your movie? You know, I'm not going to. I'm not going <laughs> to say how. No, anyway, right. but I was like, I don't know. And he said, "Well, can we make you an offer?" And he made me an offer, and it was. I was like, it was. Yeah, I was very, very happy with the offer. And so my wife was sitting next to me, and I just kind of mouthed to her how much we were getting, and we were both high five. And it, because it was like, wow, we're getting paid for this, and this is kind of the goal. Is not that's so cool? It was to to make a living at to make some you know just to, to help me. And that's mainly what I want is just enough money to make another project, you know, and and to right. be able to, yeah. So if it if it gets more than that, fantastic. I'm not against making money either. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's the whole goal here for this podcast is try to like 
hear these stories and then figure out like how can we as artists or filmmakers make a living out of it you know with these new rules and these new the new media and all this type of stuff that's happening um, where the old paradigm we don't have to necessarily buy into that anymore um, if you don't if you don't have to can you make it um, other ways so okay now with that said we'll get into the business part of it which is great since there's since business has like four basic principles, you either have a product or service that you're selling. So in this case, you have a product. It's, you know, we'll use Future Perfect as an example. You have a feature film called Future Perfect and it's a product. So now you need a, that's your supply. So you need a demand, right? So you need to have an audience or customers that will pay for your product, right? So um, do you know, have you figured out maybe like who your audience is for your, uh, or your customer base is for your, for uh, Future Perfect? Hmm, that's a really good question because I, I, what I try to do is make stories that are compelling and I don't uh, necessarily think about a target audience. I just hope that it draws people in because I've actually sat, I do though, this is what I do do. I've had, I've sit, I've had rough st- of the movie, like a rough edit, and I will sit with different people and watch it at different age groups and different, um, like my kids and their teenage friends, or my wa- my wife and my age friend, you know, that like in their people in their forties, mm-hmm. fifties, or thirties. And if I think that a good movie should have cross appeal, that it should um, engage most any age, and usually my kids have liked my movies. That, and surprisingly, what they haven't liked sometimes are like little shorts that I do like in film class or whatever that I do when I was in film class, like two or three minute shorts that I thought would they would love because it would be funny or like, and they would say, Dad, that, that was really dumb. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I would think they would find this kind of slapstick something really funny. But anyway, so, but what I listen to is, this is a good rule to follow, I think, is if you hear something from, a, like you say, a, a test audience, two or three times, the same comments keep coming up that um, you listen to that. And then maybe you make a change in your edit or cut it out. Yeah. It's, uh, it's hard for filmmakers to kill babies, as they say, your pet little things in movies that you really love that maybe a scene that doesn't necessarily work that you absolutely love. Maybe there's great dialogue in it, but, or it, but it just doesn't work for the movie. Right. And so I have actually, because of, of test audiences, cut some things. Um, very, very little, but it, it has happened. And yeah. so, to, so back to your original question... I don't know if I actually think of a target audience in my mind when I make it. I just want to make a story that's compelling. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, the funny thing with this movie I just made, The Cube, is like, because when I had um, my term at Sony had ended, I went to make an independent comedy in Hollywood doing the traditional ways. I had a friend who was a casting director. We had a cast attached to it. We had working with different producers. I was able to pitch it. It looked like things were going to happen. And the economy then tanked at that point and other things happened. And then I went to the American film market and I got a real taste of what they're actually, the, the, the film market um, was actually buying and selling. Like the, you know, so then I started to try to craft a story or project, reverse engineer it. I said, okay, well, if the buyers are going to buy something like this um, for a global audience, then let me figure out a story to, from that perspective and work backwards. So I, you know, I would start something. A lot of times I started go, oh, I mean, that's going to be too much money, or that's it, the story just got too big half the time. And I was just racking my brains until last year, where all I wanted to do is find a, a story that I could write that I could 
I'm sorry, like I, that I can make in my own house. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yes. and then I just, um, last year on my, my wife's birthday, we had a great time with our friends and stuff like that, and I couldn't sleep at night, and I had this clearest thought for this movie. I saw the beginning, middle, and I woke up the next morning, wrote the outline, wrote the script a couple you know, weeks later, it had something tangible that could, that could work. And the funny thing about it was it wasn't dictated by what the market would want or what audience. I none of that mattered. It was just it was pure just artistically needing to get it out of out of my head onto paper mm-hmm. and make it happen. Yes. So when I made it, then I didn't know what to and now I have a product. I didn't know what to do with it because I was like, Well, I don't I didn't have a crew, so I didn't have any publicity photos. So I had no stills to that a, distri- a distribution company would want, uh, or sales agent would want. Or even film festivals. So I go and I looked at the cost of like submitting to screen grabs. I have screen grabs I can yeah. use. I'll use that. But it, yeah. like you know, what I mean, I didn't have any traditional like high res right. photos that they always scream at you to to have ready for publicity. But then the, then I looked at the film festival fees and I was like, holy crap, fifty, forty dollars, thirty dollars, whatever. And I was thinking to myself, that's and that's cheap. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's cheap. So then I was thinking that's more than what the money the movie costs. But I guess that's the way it goes. And then. All that stuff that happened was it was cool because it made something not being dictated by a customer base or an audience base. So it's interesting you said like you try not to come from that place. You just come from a place that's pure, which is like here I'm creating something that I just need to get out. And now that I have it out, okay, now we can figure out a, a marketing plan around it. The new way of Independent film marketers are trying to teach everybody is to build your audience first before you even make your product, you know, so that you have them along with you and then you can make it. Um, They try not to recommend that you actually make something and then try to find an audience. So I was reading all this going, well, fuck, that didn't happen to me. I just made it. So I guess I got to start somewhere. So you do a lot of advertising, like pre-production stuff. Here's our teaser trailer for our product. For our movie we're going to make or our series or something I think like that? Something like this, like if you have an idea, like you start with the 10 people that might know you <laughs> online or something, say, hey, I'm making this movie, this is what we're doing, and like those 10 might turn to 20 and the 40, and if you get a large enough audience with you, so when you, you nurture that, that um, audience and you get feedback per se to help you kind of craft your story or let them know what's going on, what you're doing. And then when you maybe you want to have a crowdfunding uh, campaign, which uh, by the way, crowdfunding has definitely broken down the barriers of you know filmmakers finding money for their films. So if you've built an audience already, then you can say, guess what? We've got everything ready to go. Now we need your help, you know, to uh, contribute and be with partners or whatever it is. I guess technically not supposed to say partners or donation. It's con- contributions to your movie project. That's how those crowdfunding campaigns work. So then you make your, mo- your movie, and then um, when it's made, then you still have that list so that you have momentum wherever, every step of the way of your project. A lot of times, though, the reality is, like for you and I or something, or at least for me, it's I have a product that nobody knows about. So, like, I've finished it, so i got to go, oh, crap, i got to now figure out the marketing part of it. So when you finished... Um, Future Perfect did you guys have like a marketing business strategy or were you just more just relieved that you finished it <laughs> and like at what point do you get down to brass tacks where you realize okay or how do we get this to our audience yeah, um, I did make it uh, in mind with possibly trying to sell it to Hawaiian Airlines so oh. that was well, uh, first, off, first off congratulations you did it you did it <laughs> 
And um, so I purposely added some things in the movie, like we flew to Hawaii to uh, right. film a couple scenes. I knew that would be a good grab for Hawaiian Airlines because there were scenes from Hawaii in it. So they wanted, right. of course, that's their number. That's their market is Hawaii. So they wanted to. I wanted to put that in there, and so I did things like that. Uh, for, and also it gave the movie a lot of production value to go to Hawaii to shoot a few scenes and I can get there cheap I fly there for free and I, can, I flew the crew there for cheap because I put, gave them buddy passes and so forth so it, for me it was a no brainer and it was an easy marketing tool to do that to, and, an, and a great way to add a lot of production value to the movie for not a lot of money and um, so but what I was hoping was I'm a little disillusioned to be quite honest I said a lot of filmmakers are with film festivals because uh, it's really become a money game like everything else and so a lot of say they want independent films independent meaning like a 16 million dollar budget you know which is the true like micro budget indies really don't it's very hard it's very hard for them to get anywhere in any festival and also there is so much product out there there's so many movies being made like so the the good movie the good news is everybody can make a movie now and the bad news is everybody can make a movie (laughs) is that true (laughs) (laughs) an over so in business terms it's a we have too much supply and not enough demand. But, and there's not enough, but there's not a real high quality supply out there, I would say. The, the people right. that are making some quality. But there's a lot of indie stuff out there that's really high quality. Great acting, great, it's shot well, and good production value. And, but then there's a large percentage that maybe isn't so great. Um, but, you know, of course, those, you know, the audience decides which, one, you know, which ones are good or not. And that's another thing with um, film festivals, too, is, of course, we all say, well, my movie didn't get in. Then I went to the film festival and watched. I couldn't believe the garbage that they actually accepted. What my movie? And so, you know, <laughs> it's. I mean, I've, I've myself have said, it and I've heard it said by a lot of other filmmakers. But um, I, that I, I, what I think. Back to the film festival thing is, I just think that it was. It's. Um, uh, it's kind of you have to look at. What the film festival? What their uh, what do they call it? You know, when they have a their objective of their film festival is usually sometimes it's oh right. So sometimes you know your film just may not fit their genre or what they're looking for for their objective. Like, like you if, wouldn't put Future Perfect into a horror sci-fi festival. Correct. That, that's something as blatant as or that. some people their their um, you know their emphasis is on you know uh, the environment or something. You certainly wouldn't right. subject to that or to or for women's rights or whatever so so a lot of times people will su- uh, subject uh, some not subject but submit their film to the wrong festival but that said anyway uh, it's a little disheartening to me to see that sometimes or if you have a, a name in your movie it'll get, a, get in over a, maybe a movie that wasn't that, that wasn't quite as good as maybe an independent film that doesn't have a name and right. so it's what are you going to do? That's just the way it is. You have to, you, so you can't sit and cry about that kind of stuff all day. You just have to figure out how you're going to do it and how you're going to make your film successful. So we could get into that a little more because there are a lot of options out there now for people to bypass film festivals, to bypass big uh, uh, d- distributors and go right to YouTube, go to IndieFlix, Netflix. There are, 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 and, I know, and I know I'm only mentioning a few. I know yeah, there are a yeah. whole lot of independent sites now where you could put your movie out there for people to see. What is your, in your perspective, what it, what would you want to have happen to build a sustainable living making your art? 
um, is it do you are you just hoping that one film does well enough that you can make a next one and then the next one yes. and, that, and, that, and that's is that sort of how you want to build the career yes I would okay. like one built thing to build on another and I um, and like I said it, I would be very very happy if it actually made if I made a decent living at it at, at some point in time but I'm very fortunate in the fact that my wife and I both are, are employed we both have good jobs We're, we have a very comfortable life so I'm not a starving artist, but right. but I'm still starving in a way that I because I, I I want to work in the industry a lot. It's a driving force in my life. So I would still say, even though financially I'm not starving, I'm still starving in a way for the art of it, for the hunger to create. So that um, makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I would love to actually be able to say maybe I could take a few mo- two or three months off work. Just to make a film because I have enough money to do that. That would be, that would be wonderful. It would be like, what? Who is it that said to do what you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life? I've heard that quote before, but I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's a definitely perspective, but then you know, reality is reality. Sometimes we're like, you know, what something is. If you're in a partnership as a marriage, we have kids and stuff like that. There are, especially when you have kids, because you get to this certain place where you stop thinking about yourself and you 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 separate and you're like, I gotta you know helps support um a family unit so or in a marriage you become a partnership where it's you know it's no necessary you're no longer just by yourself it's like thinking um all your actions and stuff just dictate what your needs are it's all this stuff that i had to think about reflect about how does this work out with my my marriage my my family all the stuff that i'm responsible for so the question here if we're looking at basic business um, here's an interesting story for you is the you see that f- people start film production companies left and right or down in Hollywood there's like a star has their own production company mm-hmm. left and right but they also uh, go bankrupt or get dissolved you know more than more than I guess majority of them all do at, at some point or the other so I always attribute this back to the story when Steve Jobs owned um, Pixar and they made Toy Story so they made like this, the biggest you know hit animation movie of all time or whatnot at the time and then Steve Jobs looked at the success and he said you know what this business model that Pixar had in the at, at the time which was a production company it was like Pixar Productions or whatever it was he said this is a stupid business model because you guys rely on like the success of one film after another film so if one film falls apart then you're out you're shit out of luck so, so what mm-hmm. we got to do, he says, we've got to take Pixar and make it a studio, and then we got to open it up to the public for public offering so they get a cash influx. Because So riding off the success of Toy Story, they announced, like, we're going to start Pixar Studios. And so they had all this capital come in because, okay, we want to invest into the future of what you guys are going to do with the studio. So then, just like all the other studio systems, there are only really six, six studio systems, and they have, you know they have basically a diversified portfolio, right, of media that they can make money or lose money on or make money on. But you as an independent filmmaker or independent film production company um, live and die by your hits. You know what I mean? Like, And so yes. to, to shift that, you have products now. You have, you have ownership of four, pro- uh, f- uh, four films plus a web series coming out. Is there a way to like shift your business model to make I guess what well, the idea is to, to 
make money as a studio, like an independent studio versus a independent production company. So just a, just a thought, because mm. that's what this is. Um, that's what I've done with my film. So I finished it, and I thought to myself, like, wait a minute, I could actually start my own independent studio. So I started one called Arrow and Entertainment. And the idea is to have diversified um, amount of content being produced so that, you know, you, ha- you, you have, have an actual studio or just a, like a company, it's, like a production it's, company? It's, it's a studio, it's an LLC, but it's, it only exists online. So you go to Arrow and Entertainment, there's no brick and mortar. I mean, right. it's, it exists there. So I have one film, and then I have, you know, the podcast, so this is part of the content, and then you have some other stuff that you start building, you know, over time. So then you could, then it's, at least I'm entering into it with the concept like, I should build it as the same way Warner Brothers builds their company, you know, but I can just do it on a smaller scale. So you have what you have with... Uh, now, tell me a little bit about Fantini. Fantini, Fantini Cinema. So LLC. where does Fantina come Fantini from? Fantini is my... I'm Itali- part Italian. My mother... It's my mother's maiden name is Fantini. And so I was trying to think of a production company's name, and I just couldn't come up with anything. And I... Uh, so I finally, I always liked the name Fantini, and I wanted to kind of honor my mother's side of the family. And so I, uh, and I thought it made a Fantini cinema. I thought it sounded like a nice, sounded sounded kind of artsy fartsy to me. So I well, I think it works. It was great. So you can turn like Fantini cinema into you have an LC, but I guess it's shifting the the concept. I know that. Um, some of our lo- other local filmmakers uh, have a uh, hot squash entertainment. I think Jacqueline Galt and um, James, I forgot his last name. Anyhow, so they, they're, they're, the idea is they're trying to produce a couple different products. So they have, you know, more titles, just more than one title under their belt for to give them the, the opportunity of, of success, you know, so the, you're not just riding on one. But you have, what I'm, I don't know, I don't have the answers. All I know is that Business-wise, I was like, these are some successful business um, things that other people have done. But if we, if we as independent people, can just turn it on its mm-hmm. head a little bit and just make it smaller, like you know, just make it more independent, right. but always keeping that concept. So I read this book called uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad. I read that book too. Okay, so you know that book was great only in the sense that really what I took away from it was that business systems you know he talks about the four quadrants of cash flow but the, the, the one thing to make people rich people is that they always have a business system the, the, the biggest um, examples like McDonald's the worst hamburgers but they sell more hamburgers and they have the best real estate because they're always at the, the right corner or the right part of the mall and they have a system so they're able to like rinse repeat it over and over and over because you know their processes and their systems allow them to be a successful business, not necessarily the best hamburgers. So the yes. question is, we have all this creative ability to, to make stuff. We just have to get creative in like how we approach the business part of it, how to make sort of a system, you know, or how to make a studio, that kind of stuff. Anyway, I just thrown that out there because as we're talking, the idea is that wh- those who want to listen, this is why they're listening to the the podcast in the first place, is to to try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs, to, to take the next step. We've, you know, it takes so, so much hard work just to become a filmmaker, to make a film. Yes. Now there's this whole new wave of things. Now you have to learn this whole other skill set of becoming a, a business entrepreneur. But if you can tie it all in together, then you might have a better chance of, uh, of making a sustainable living out of it. Well, and I unfortunately suffer from what a lot of artists suffer from, which is the business end is, the wor- is my weakest part of it. And so I am... Um, 
I like the creative part. I like putting a movie together. I love editing. I love the whole process. But when it comes to actually the business end, it's not my strong suit. So I've actually kind of, uh, I that's why I've hired a a promoter for my next for the web series and so forth because I realize it's not my strength, and I wish I had more words of wisdom for someone who wanted to uh, work the business end of it. But I'm still learning that myself. And uh, anyway, stop me, please. No, no, say no. something more. Say something. No, you're good. You know I'm what? Saying. You have it all. It's here, here's something I. So I went to the American film market a couple of years ago, and the funniest thing is, is I went to this this symposium, like the first like orientation. It was a small group, and the guy who runs the the independent film, I don't know, some group that puts on the American film market. Now, for those of anyone listening is not familiar with the American film market, is is essentially the same thing as the Cannes film market. It's so, but the difference is the Cannes film market is also the Cannes Film Festival. So all we see in the press is always the film festival. It's always the big red carpet. It's all the glitz and glamour. But there's a there's a literally a film market going on at the same time. So the same people that go to the film market at Cannes, they go to the same film market in Singapore, the same market in uh, Berlin, and the same market in Santa Monica in November in America. But the problem with the American film market, there's no film festival tied to it. So it's just straight buyers and sellers of film so when I was there the guy first thing he says in the symposium or whatever he's, he says if you have a film don't go to a film festival let's just be clear what a film festival is it's a cultural event for that city and um, there's only two film festivals the Cannes Film Festival and Sundance that have like market value to it that's probably changed since then but he was trying to allude to the fact that you have an opportunity you have value in your film because no one's seen it so you know if you put it out there you might dilute the the sale potential of your film so if you come to the film market first and work with the buyers first before anybody ever sees it then you might have more value to to selling it versus like just set, you know submitting it to a film festival and it's actually kind of funny if you look at the crowdfunding wave of people making like money for all these different projects someone wrote in a blog I read recently it was like your film actually has more value before it's even made because like you read these things like we made it we made it. we did our goal a hundred thousand or a million dollars for a film project you know everybody's like yay and then when the thing is made everybody's like because eh, it's like it's not as good as we thought it was gonna be you know <laughs> common story <laughs> well so at that market you know yeah i, I Hold on for a second and pause this. <laughs> okay, hey, we're back. Sorry, I had to sign the check here. So Mark and I were talking about um, what the hell I'm going to do with this podcast and if we have any listeners. Actually, we don't have any listeners right now. So what I had, the problem was with the... And Mark was asking me, well, how do you get it onto iTunes? So the simple question with the podcast is you build a site um, like a, through a WordPress that allows you to post you know, blogs or podcast episodes. And so you record this and then I convert it to the right format. And then you have to have a good enough server to, so that whoever wants to listen to this over the across the globe can access it very quickly. And so Amazon offers basically a, um, a service called, uh, think like Amazon web service or web storage. So you can get a free membership there or a free service, like give you five gigabytes free for the first year. 
So you throw, and they have much better robust servers than something you might buy on like um, Bluehost or I use HostMonster. So I throw up all the podcast episodes onto Amazon um, S3 um, storage account, and then that link then gets put into my website, for, and then <laughs> and then what happens is that website develops this, this RSS real simple syndication line of code that gets submitted to iTunes. And so iTunes doesn't hold any of these uh, podcasts that they have in their library. They, they're just basically a gigantic search engine that grabs from all these different um, lines of codes, these RSS feeds, and they put them into their, their search engine. So for you, for you wanna, if you're into podcasts, you want to learn about business or film. So you might scroll... And you, that's how you would find Film Trooper podcasts because the keywords and the, and the, the, the things that I write in there are very sp- specific. Independent filmmaking, business, and marketing. So something like, oh, you know, I'm interested in all that. Let me check it out. So they might listen to a few of the, you know, bits of the, um, the podcast. And if they like what they hear, they'll subscribe and they'll get, you know, notification that, hey, the, a new one's up. So they, they would read it. So for you, for this one, we would write in like, you know... Um, Northwest filmmaker Mark Steele, you know, talks about you know his films and, and all this information. So this is now like advertisement for you, and this is the whole podcast world is what we call content marketing. So in business perspective, like I'm not, I don't have any money right now to pay for uh, advertisement for my film, or you might not have money to pay for Future mm-hmm. Perfect to like do like Facebook ads or Google ads in specific areas you know, that kind of stuff, or you don't have money for TV commercials, you know, that kind of stuff. So what is a layman, you know, person that has no money, how do you promote your film? Well, the idea is that this podcast is free, and what we try to do is if we're going to give it away free, we have to have good content, right? So you have to have, well, go, you know, p- interesting stuff that people might want to listen to, because... To, I guarantee you there's tons of people like us out there going through the same struggles going, I'm like those guys. I have a job, but I'm try- I am had this creative need, and I want to make a movie, but, it, but I want to make, make movies so I can make a sustainable living. So how are they doing it? You know, you've made a movie. You, you've got it sold. That's a, a success. I finished a movie that I have yet to release because I realized I made it, but I don't have an audience, and I'm building my marketing plan to launch it, you know? And so... That's what this podcast is meant to do. Is like even though they might, you know, we might not have anybody uh, listening right away because this is pretty brand new. I'm just launching this thing, but in a month from now, it might be 30 people listen to it. Maybe two, three months from now, it might be a couple hundred. You know, and this always exists. So a year from now, somebody might hear this podcast. And like you've moved on to like your next your the web series your next film you know and we might bring you back in like a, a couple months from now and go hey we're doing a follow up Mark Steele this here's this latest stuff and then but somebody listening to it the first time doesn't know that this this entity happened you know like a you know in the way way in the past that's a great thing about podcasts you can follow up on somebody's information like you had two years ago and it sounds fresh to you so that's that's mm-hmm. sort of the a low barrier of entry for marketing is what they call content marketing and podcasts are one form of content marketing and that's what I'm doing here which is I'm not advertising the cube my movie I'm advertising a a real trying to add value to a customer by saying look let's discuss this let's mm-hmm. have these discussions about how we can help other filmmakers become entrepreneurs and how we can help them 
develop a sustainable business plan or something where all of us can benefit in, in the future. You know, it's not going to be easy, but that's that's the goal here. Let me ask you something real quick. So you did your experience in um, having a premiere because you got it at the Hollywood Theater to show uh, uh, Future Perfect. What was? Why did you choose that theater, or did you have any other theaters in mind that you wanted to show it? Um, well, I. Probably because of familiarity, I had screened um, wearing normal there, and so I still had all the email contacts from the people there. And I, they have a new sound system, and and I, you know, so I thought they had a pretty quality venue. I know, you know, and it's everything's personal choice, but that's why I went back there is because I'd already been there and I felt comfortable going back, and I was happy with my first experience. And um, you know, it's, they have great seats. I mean, it's very oh yeah, yeah. theater. Well, the reason I'm, you know, selfishly asking is because I have I have to de- develop my sort of premiere for uh, my movie, The Cube, and have like a local showing. And I didn't know I was still trying to f- figure out like which theaters I should approach. I reached out to some other producers. I just mentioned like just you know ask them all because sometimes did you have to pay a fee or or like ideally you want somebody to go look if you're if you're able to bring in like X amount of patrons into our theater then you can have the showing for free but i don't think it works that way not at hollywood no you no. have to pay yeah you have to pay there if it's d- during the week or matinee it's cheaper on the weekends it's more expensive right do they require you to cover insurance or does the theater cover that yeah so. they cover that it's just a flat fee i see well what's the do you mind if i ask you what the flat fee for i think for, for matinee it's 500 for weekend it's weekends it's 800 well that's not bad for a weekend 800 that's bad because I saw that you guys had a matinee. Is that correct? It or was a, actually, but it was on the weekend, so it was still eight hundred. Oh, okay. So yeah, but it was a late matinee. It was like four thirty in the afternoon, five o'clock something. Like that, yeah, which was it was the only time they had available on the day that I needed. So how many uh, weeks or months ahead of time do you have to book it? A lot, and they actually require to see your trailer because they don't they won't put just anything on. So, right. Right. They had to approve my film, which is kind of like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mark Steele. <laughs> <laughs> so I sent them the trailer, and then they said, okay, it's acceptable. So how long, how many weeks or months was it out that you booked it? I'd say six weeks to two months. Okay. okay. Quite, yeah, and it, I would, and they were already booked. A lot of the, the actual uh, date I wanted was already gone. So yeah. I would say those, you know, even three or four months in advance would be good, be Have wise. You, have you heard from any other filmmakers in town about other theaters that are, are good to it's show at? Bedroom theater is pretty good. A lot of people like Baghdad. Um, um, and so, and I can't speak to either of those venues because I've never, I've never, I've been to Baghdad, but I've never screened a movie there. And I, I'm sure it's fine. It's a now, which uh, Hollywood has two th- two screens, right? They have yes, they have the large and then their um, smaller one upstairs. one upstairs. Which one would you guys show at? The large one. Get out of it. How, how many people came? Because I, I, the reason I cannot make it is my, it landed on my wife's birthday. I, oh. I remember texting you just saying, I can't make it because yeah. it, it was June 1st and I couldn't make it because it was, that was my wife's birthday. <laughs> we, uh, well, yeah, and it was a beautiful day too. Yeah, beautiful. yeah. So yeah, I didn't have as many people there as I was hoping. I think we had about 100 to 150, somewhere around there. That's bad. Cause it, that's not bad, cause, but the theater's so big, that wig one. It was like, big. It holds yeah. 350. So, yeah, it looked kind of empty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, um, yeah, I'm looking at a, a smaller venue just so that if it's more crowded, even better. If it's like 100. <laughs> you can use their theater upstairs and it's cheaper, too. I might that. do that. Something like that. Yeah. 
That's a great venue. And you guys, did you do some sort of deal with the pizza place next by? Or how no. did you do that? Okay. Because I saw it was like Future Perfect and Atomic Pizza. Do they just advertise below you I or something? I think they just advertise below. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did yeah. you have an event afterwards? Or, so you showed the movie. And, movie then, and then we all went to like Moon and Sixpence. And we just, for drinks and some appetizers afterwards. And okay. Just, just, just for everyone to come over and talk about the movie. And we stayed for hours. Yeah, several people, many people came and just hung out, chit-chatted, and talked about the movie, and congratulations, and all that stuff, and wanted to talk to the actors. And we had a Q&A afterwards on stage for the audience, for um, with the actors and uh, the DP. It's important to do that, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have a crew. So, no, <laughs> I, know, I, can't, I can't believe you made a movie without a crew. That's so, that would not be easy. Just it's not. I don't recommend it. You know, it's funny. So I went to um, the City Baby premiere... In the, when yeah, the I heard that's a really good movie, and I'm. Uh, I met the filmmaker. The, the guy, he was in a acting, David. Yeah, he was in an acting class I was in. Actually, he wanted to learn how what actors go through, so he actually did some acting in right. the class. And um, he's quite funny. He has a very dry sense of humor, and he's yes. he's marrying Cora uh, Vanesh. Vanesh. Yeah. So she, they were producing that together. But it was my buddy um, Bryce Fordner who who shoots all the Portlandia stuff. He's the director photographer for that. He, this is one of the first films he shot here in Portland. So that's how I knew about City Baby. So I went to that premiere. and it, They had it over on the northwest side. I forget the theater, but it, it was fairly big, this big old theater. And they had a pretty good turnout. Yeah, they had a great turnout. So then afterwards, we all walked a few blocks, but it was mingling, you know, with everybody there. Um, so that was neat. You know, it's just like I just it's neat to see those moments. You Have know. you interviewed Mike? Not uh, yet. Yeah, he'd be a good guy to talk to. Yeah. So yeah, I have a I have a lined up. You are my one of my first people. Thank so, you. So, <laughs> and I hope to I'm have you back. To I yeah. want to have you back after you've got your uh, your your webisodes uh, up and okay, running. Yeah, Let's it's called see. Random Acts. Random Acts. Random yeah. Acts. Okay, we'll get that going. I'll put this all on top of just the podcast. People can link back to Film Trooper. Uh, dot com and that will show the show notes so everything we're talking here I'll, I'll provide links to your movies probably links to you, who you are and all that kind of stuff so that that way people can follow up more like oh let me check it out let me talk about yeah so be awesome but you know what we'll wrap it up I know we've been talking for about almost an hour and a half I'll see if I can cut this down but you know maybe get some of the uh, ums uh, out of it but no, it's been really great. I can't thank you enough for doing this. Well, thank you for having me. I have had a great time. Enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, and I hope... So we just touched a little bit about how you can make movies, just doing it, and then just the general... Just do it. Yeah, and then just the struggles of like, but at least conceptually what we're trying to do business-wise and how we can make something happen out of this. So it'll be interesting to see for sure. You know, yes. I, you know. Sometimes when you create something, it's the, the the thing that you don't think much about is the stuff that takes over. Like it has its life of its own. Sometimes you've heard those types of stories. So that who knows? You need this this web series that you're just venturing into might totally turn into something you're not not ready for. But you know, but in a good way. That would be very <laughs> welcomed. Yes. Well, check it out. Um, I really enjoyed um, um, yeah, Future Perfect. I thought you guys did a really great job in that, and it was Thank really you very fun. Much. And yeah, your acting, you know, is rock solid. I could tell definitely in the maturity to your your performance and stuff like that. And I was like, ah, where I have a lot again. Mine's very <laughs> immature. So anyway, <laughs> no. Well, thank you very much for the compliments. I appreciate it. Awesome. What's it? Thank All right. You, thank you. Thank you so that much. Was awesome. I had a great time. I'd love to come back and talk about the web series when it's a big hit. Rocking. <laughs> thank you for lunch. Yeah. Appreciate it. No problem. Mm-hmm.